okay, John, this is complete nonsense. Utter BS. Mm. Our campaign to get Captain Marvel voted down Ugh. for being just another superhero movie um, with, I don't know, a non-white person in the lead, <laughs> question mark? Or, sorry, a non-white male in the lead, question mark? Ugh, it's like... It's I, failed again. I mean... Foiled again. We thought we won with Ghostbusters. You know, now that Jason Reitman's doing the next Ghostbusters, and there's going to be no ladies in it whatsoever. No. He said it's no, gonna it's, be... a, it's, a, it's a He-Man Women's Haters Club. Exactly. The new Ghostbusters reboot. Mm-hmm. And not and... just Stranger Things redoing. <laughs> <laughs> and now look at Captain Marvel coming in with all its SJW virtue signaling. Ugh, I can't stand it. Is, is that what this is about? I have I, to set up sorry, all was... these tweet bots. Yes, that's exactly what it's about. I have to set up all <laughs> okay. these tweet bots to kind of like downvote it, you know, clap back. Like this is what Twitter's for, right? This is like Twitter's social currency. So we have to downgrade the social currency of Brie Larson mm. in order so we can win. All right? We, we're at the forefront of this culture war, Rick. See, that's the thing. I didn't know we were still fighting. The year's 2019. I thought we moved on from this. No, At least, like, it never ends, Craig. It I could ends. understand. Like, so for a lot of these movements, they they pretend that it's about something else. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Ghostbusters, like, no, it's the sanctity of the original movie. Or Gamerbait, <laughs> it's about ethics in, journal- in games journalism. <laughs> no, because like, they, they don't want to pretend <laughs> that it's about something else. I don't know what they, like, what the alternative excuse is for, again, Captain Marvel. What looks like, for all intents and purposes, just a reg- another regular superhero movie. How dare you, Greg? Okay, this is about the the Greg. This is the Kree Empire we're talking here. Okay, this is important <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Who are the Kree? We're bringing it. What are you back, talking Greg? about? <laughs> the Kree were the blue guys from Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, they're bringing it back. They're folding it in. It's great. It's it's gonna oh, be fantastic. Oh, that's right. Now I know yeah. what you're, you're talking about. The the uh, Lee the Conqueror, whatever his name was. No, the actor's name was. <laughs> it Lee. was oh. yes. It was Ronan the Accuser, Greg. Okay. Ah, okay. The most memorable villain of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ronan the Accuser. <laughs> John, does Marvel have a villain problem? Nobody's asked this yet. I know. I think we should rank the Marvel villains. No one else has tried this, so no. I think it's up to us to do this. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad we're we're breaking new ground here on this mm-hmm. podcast about movies that we haven't seen before. Exactly. In case you haven't visited yet, hello, welcome to the Aspiring Snobs podcast. I am Greg. I am John, and we are brothers, and we are yeah. uh, f- uh, filling out our film criticism bona fides by revisiting movies that we hadn't seen before. And let's be honest, probably didn't have a huge uh, appeal to see. I definitely know in c- terms of this week's movie, I had no interest in seeing it, so I kind of had to force myself and turn it to homework in order to force myself to see it. <laughs> homework. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, John, because uh, while we're just giving introductions, we should also explain that I live in Los Angeles, the city in which this the movie we're going to talk about takes place. Mm-hmm. You live in San Diego, arguably a more desirable city to be in. Um, not really much of an argument, but let's, <laughs> for the sake, let's just pretend. Mm-hmm. So... Are we completely wasting our time by choosing to spend uh, what little free time we have indoors watching movies that other people have liked? <laughs> well, given this local weather we've been having, are you crazy? It's been <laughs> raining cats and dogs. Hey. Let me tell you, folks. Have you seen in this? Lo- have you heard about this? <laughs> in the local news, it's raining in Southern California. Can you believe it? And we can't handle it, okay? We're no. used to 70 degrees every day, so if there's any deviation, we just we lose our minds, okay? And this is too much. Too much. But Indeed. we're getting we're kind of getting off topic of what it seems I, like we I want to talk are. about anything but the movie we watched this week. I, that's not true. I think we do want to tackle this one because this is an enigmatic one. Mm. We are talking 
Roger Ebert's great movies. We are talking 1001 films we need to see before you die. We are talking uh, not AFI, but I'm sure it was in consideration. I, ta- John, don't don't give him those bona fides because okay. technically every movie is in the 1001 movies you've seen, you've seen before you die. Roger Ebert, before he pa- sadly passed, it did <laughs> include every movie in the great movies collection. Okay, good to know. <laughs> yes, because this week we are tackling our first David Lynch feature, Mulholland Drive. John, I mean, I could give you more bona fides for this particular movie. Okay. The British Film Institute named it the 28th greatest movie of all time ever mm. made <laughs> in the in the 70-year existence of that magazine. And I think more importantly, in 2016, the BBC decided, hey, now's a good time to conduct a poll of the greatest movies of the 21st century. And Mulholland Drive came out number one. Wow. Okay. Yes. Interesting mm-hmm. choice, but uh, yes. let's talk about it, shall we? <laughs> Um, I, this is my first time seeing it, as well as your first time seeing it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best Todd from BoJack Horseman impression here. <laughs> the movie's great, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just put cards on the table. This is not the movie for us, sadly, because I've, uh, strong disagree. I was going to say there are very, there are four very good reasons why this movie's the greatest movie ever made, but we'll get there. Okay, fine. <laughs> Oh, I get what you. Oh, oh, titty joke. Got it. Okay, it took me a second, but I I'm got sorry, it. John. What are you? T- what are you, What could you possibly be referring to? But anyway, we'll we'll arrive there. L- look, in the process of doing this podcast, I've kind of discovered that part of what me and Greg like about a movie is story and narrative and structure. Not just the art of filmmaking, but also we we tend to be drawn more to movies with kind of a tight story and kind of strong characters. Yeah. Um, Mulholland Drive, for all its fine points, is not that kind of movie. It is obviously trying to go for more of a mood piece. It is more uh, kind of like an extended dream sequence. It's more concerned with kind of atmosphere and tone than anything else. Well, yeah, I would say beyond those things, John, it's art. And that's Mm. what David Lynch does. It's art. And there's no way to observe the story without looking at first its production history, Mm -hmm. but also the career of David Lynch. Um, For those who don't know, this is our, as you mentioned, this is our first movie of David Lynch's that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And um, I did want to explain his career a little bit because he he bursts onto the scene with this independent movie called The Racerhead. Mm -hmm. 
And from there, he could have had a more conventional Hollywood career between a prestige drama, The Elephant Man, and a big sci-fi epic um, in in the same vein as Star Wars. He directed Dune. Yes, is what you're referring to, and then yes. also, you know, famously, he had the opportunity to direct uh, Revenge of the Jedi, aka Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi. Um, it was originally called Revenge of the Jedi. For yeah, all good, good save a, there. Yeah, good save there. You couldn't remember. Shut <laughs> up. All right, no, I'm just so such a big Star Wars fan. Okay, I know more about Star Wars than you. Its codename was Blue Harvest when they were filming. Okay, good. okay, thank you, John. I retract. My, I retract my insult. You've thank won. You. But following that, being a, a, a production boondoggle as well as a box office flop, he mm-hmm. said, I'm going to do movies my way. And the movies that he wants to do his way are basically, uh, what if film noir were weird? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a very strong Hitchcockian influence in his work, especially mm-hmm. this movie. And that is kind of the, int- like, that is, I think, the main appeal of David Lynch is the fact that he takes these kind of dime novel noir kind of stories and the twist is, you know, obviously he keeps you guessing, but the way he keeps mm-hmm. you guessing is by not following any kind of normal train of logic. <laughs> and so no. that's why you can never really parse out the answer, if there even no. is an answer. Well, I think there is, because you're right, it is very surrealistic, but I think he is trying to arrive somewhere. Mm. Um, obviously, the big analogy in his first movie, Eraserhead, which is, as we said, as we mentioned, like a very surrealistic, tough art piece but you could say you could argue it's an analogy for child rearing mm-hmm. and possibly the horrors of that with Mulholland Drive it is about the the um, the allure but also dangers of Hollywood mm-hmm. because it's set Mulholland Drive is a and a lot of critics have pointed this out Mulholland Drive basically bisects um, San Fernando Valley from Hollywood proper mm-hmm. and so like people see it as this dividing line between uh, fail- failure and success yes and it's a very twisty winding road yes <laughs> A dangerous road, isn't it? Mm, Yes. We're talking metaphors here, people. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, people are grabbing onto that. So while it's not following a a perfect structure or absolute logic in storytelling, there is something to grab onto there. Mm -hmm. But I've got to be honest, it wasn't for me. And... (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. You're acknowledging that right away. But what what about it didn't didn't quite grab you? It's the... Again, I have to kind of like sadly kind of go back to the fact that as a mo- as a film watcher, as a fan of mm-hmm. film, what draws me in is a well-constructed narrative, a well-grounded story. I don't quite see as much of the appeal as mood pieces. Not to say that there's not movies that are mood pieces that I don't love. It's just it tends not to be what kind of draws me in or what I'm attracted to personally. And so watching this film, you know, obviously, the, you know, his thesis is trying to go for like this very dreamlike noir kind of story. But there's not really a strong kind of sense of character there. And there's no real sense of story or structure to it. So personally, I don't feel quite invested. And I didn't feel myself getting absorbed into the story because of that. I didn't feel myself getting immersed. It felt like it was kind of keeping me at an arm's length distance. Yeah, I was kind of on the opposite end of that coin. Like mm-hmm. like you, I do appreciate like a good, well-told story with clearly defined characters, motivations, and plot lines. And so, mm-hmm. normally a film wouldn't wouldn't appeal. A film like this wouldn't appeal to me. However, there were those little connections, like as you said, the the allures and dangers of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. There were those metaphors. There was something logically that I could hold on to. 
but also I think it's because I came in knowing the career of David Lynch and also the production hell that this movie <laughs> was because it started as a TV pilot for ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, David Lynch had developed Twin Peaks, which became a massive hit. And so ABC came to him like, hey, you want to do another series? And so he concocted this. Okay, I'm massive have hit. This. It only lasted like two seasons. <laughs> well, it, uh, no, it was a massive hit for the first few episodes, and then it became like lost with um, less patient viewers. So okay, that's when, okay, got it. <laughs> and also, David Lynch had a falling out with the co-creator, and yeah, it just didn't, it didn't quite work. But it was a hit at the time. Mm. I think it had the pilot had over like 20 million viewers or something. Mm. So they came to him basically like, hey, develop another series for us. And he had this idea of a film noir with a woman who wakes up with amnesia. Um, they cast. Laura Elena Herring and Naomi Watts, who's this like plucky upstart actress who try to solve this mystery together. And the other storyline involves this director played by Justin Thoreau. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and knowing that now, I can kind of see why structurally the movie is kind of the way it is. Yeah, because it does feel very kind of bifurcated, and it does you can kind of see that fine divi- uh, that dividing line, that Mahone Drive, as it were, <laughs> from where this becomes TV pilot to trying to be a conventional movie. Yeah, I could kind of see because I knew that going in. So yeah, I can, it felt like a like a TV show. Like okay, we're gonna juggle these things to keep you at attention between commercial breaks. So mm-hmm. it felt like a lot of other TV shows in that uh, to kind of uh, dividing these two storylines, dividing your attention between these two storylines. Um, there is also two detectives, one of whom played by is played by Robert Forster. There they appear in one minute in the very first scene, and they're never seen again <laughs> because they were going to be included in, in the TV show, which obviously didn't happen. The pilot didn't get picked up. However, years later, uh, David Lynch was just sitting at his house, which I believe is probably very quirky and, <laughs> and odd. <laughs> and he's like, I, I had a vision. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he found a conclusion to the story, was able to get to the right the rights of the footage, took it to Studio Canal, like a French company, and said, like, hey, can I get the money to finish this movie? I think you mean, and hey, can I get the money to finish my movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, excuse me. <laughs> For my film. And they said yes, because it was such a strong art piece. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, and won critical acclaim back in 2001. It's now well regarded as the one of the best movies of the century. <laughs> okay. Yeah, which, I, again, I, that seems like an arbitrary point. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't see why we have to define things by the last 18, 19 years, but mm-hmm. uh, I do, it, because I had that context, somehow I was I was willing to forgive a lot of those like little lapses. But things. that's extracurriculars, Greg. No, like, what about right. the movie? What about the movie as a whole by itself? Uh, the movie as a whole by itself, even even without that extracurricular knowledge, I feel like there's there's enough artistically to grasp onto. And enough to identify with with um, Naomi Watts's character mm. that it, and, and what I and probably a lot of other critics and audiences have responded to with this movie. I had a dream about this place. Oh boy. See what I mean? <laughs> okay. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Well. It's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this, (laughs) except for the light. And I'm scared like I can't tell you. 
all people, you're standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are, and... Then I realize what it is. <laughs> There's a man... in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. Um, it's still like occupying headspace, to be, <laughs> to be honest, a couple days later. So um, I kind of disagree. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Um, cool, cool. I'm fine with that. Okay, right. <laughs> on to the next movie. All right. Um, so we we talk about kind of like the dividing line between like when this was a TV pilot and when it eventually becomes a movie, and I think you see that strongest in the Naomi Watts character because she actually plays two characters in this movie. Yes, as we mentioned, she is a uh, plucky young upstart actress who, like, literally arrives in town off the bus. Well, maybe, maybe not literally the bus, but she makes friends with, like, people at the <laughs> airport. She's very cheery. Um, also, her, her acting is very, like, histrionic and seems straight out of the 40s. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, hello, I'm Betty. <laughs> yeah, her, yeah. It's it, there's this weird kind of, like, it's trying to go for, like, an atmosphere of, like, the 1950s. Like, mm -hmm. and it kind of, like, the movie kind of feels a little out of place. Like, it even opens with, like, kind of like a swing dance number to kind of get you into this mindset of like this could be happening anytime but it's very much inspired by the 50s and you definitely mm -hmm. get that sense with you know hi i'm betty i'm here to, i'm gonna hopefully gonna make it as an actress i hope i memorize all these lines tonight oh boy this is a lot of work <laughs> uh, yeah so initially i was like res i was resistant to it because i like realistic movies i like you know kind of down-to-earth settings and Mm -hmm. and acting um so when you immediately put this wall between me of like like howdy this is <laughs> i i'm i'm stereotypical like actress fresh off the bus <laughs> i've got my audition tomorrow <laughs> yeah and it's it's um it's improved somewhat though when it's contrasted with this other like gripping noir narrative mm -hmm. um where the character who doesn't even know her name she just picks it up from speaking of old film references a, a rita hayworth poster mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, she ends up in the uh, apartment, the vacated apartment that Betty kind of she her aunt occupies it, but she's moved yeah. in, and uh, you know so she can go out for auditions and try to make it as an actress in L.A. while she's out of town. Yeah, she finds Rita squatting there <laughs> because yeah. she doesn't remember who she is or what's going she on. She just survived this uh, car accident mm -hmm. on on the very dangerous Mulholland Drive, mm -hmm. and they decide that they're gonna try to figure out who Rita is and where she comes from, and. Mm -hmm. We do kind of get an explanation for all that, but the story kind of twists in on itself like a pretzel. Um, it turns out that we kind of go back in time. Well, the timeline gets a little kind of fuzzy, and we mm -hmm. kind of lead back to how she ended up in that car, why she ended up being targeted. The only ins the only scene we get prior to the movie starting of Rita in uh, before the car crash is Rita is in a car and she's about to get shot. Basically, she's mm -hmm. like got a hit out from the mob. And we do kind of get an explanation for that as well. 
I mean, I do appreciate the fact that the movie tries to kind of give an explanation and try to kind of weave the mystery narrative back into it after, you know, an interminable length with Betty and Rita. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it just wasn't moving quickly enough for me. And there wasn't kind of enough of that drip, drip, drip information to kind of keep me invested. We do get the dead body at one point and we do get a nice kind of like twisted explanation for that as well. Yeah. But then the story kind of like folds in on itself and just kind of comes too dreamlike. So, uh, you know, I was questioning like whether this was supposed to be the explanation or was because the other thing, too, is Naomi Watts plays Betty, but then also another character named Diane. Whoa, whoa, whoa. John, did you just add all-purpose flour to this story? Because the plot just thickened. (laughs) (laughs) So as Betty and Rita are trying to discover the secret of who she is, we finally kind of jump back in time, and it turns out that she is an actress named Camilla, and she's been working on this movie with this director that we've been following, played by Justin Theroux. Mm-hmm. Who is so, my favorite part of the movie because Justin Thoreau makes me melt. <laughs> <laughs> he is a very handsome man. I mean, mm. every every time you see him on screen, it's snack time. <laughs> I don't know. I'm quite well, thirsty. Those, those snacks must be salty because I'm thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, to get back on track, I think you're right in that the the pacing of the that initial Rita Betty story them trying to solve the mystery is is a little slack because Adam doesn't have a lot to do and his story is much more nebulous and really sets off on his own circuitous logic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's implied that he so he's a Hollywood director. It's implied that he's got some conflict with the studios who want to cat and the mafia who want to cast somebody else. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to like the kind of nineteen fifties noir yeah. it feels very much like out of that era with the whole mob ties and, and the setting as yeah. well yeah and also with his he's got not just in his professional life but also in his personal life because he storms off out of the office like no i'm i'm sticking by my actress you can fire me if you want i i'm sticking up for my artistic integrity but he comes home and it looks it appears that his wife or girlfriend it's not quite clearly explained is cheating on him <laughs> mm-hmm and it leads to him, well, I mean like, that's a good explanation for it because that's it kind of comes out of nowhere anyway. So yeah, <laughs> it does lead to a, a peculiar scene, one one in which I enjoyed. He decides to take revenge by pouring pink paint all over her fine gold jewelry, <laughs> <laughs> and then the the wife comes, the wife and his uh his uh, cuckold or whatever coming. <laughs> The, the John that she's seeing uh, come in, beats him up, and the rest of the movie, he's got a little, like, pink paint, like, kind of dotted all over him. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? Look, where's this going? What do you want me to do? There's sometimes a buggy. How many drivers does a buggy have? One. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. And if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Okay. I want you to go back to work tomorrow. You were recasting the lead actress anyway. Audition many girls for the part. When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay, that's up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. 
Now you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. But yeah, it's it's a little, his storyline's a little too nebulous, and it doesn't. It takes too long to figure out where these um, where these two storylines finally converge, and that's Betty the actress kind of winning her role, mm-hmm. and uh, Adam the director kind of affirming that either she's right or like what their relationship is, because there, there's a lot of doubling in this movie, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I can quite um, kind of square. In terms of the artistic integrity, like I can understand the allures and the and the pitfalls of Hollywood, but maybe what Lynch was going for was like uh, showing the two sides of that coin by having characters mirror each other. A having Naomi Watts like pl- play two different roles, two completely different characters, one very naive, one very um, sinister and cynical, mm-hmm. and then later Betty trying to um, save Rita from her mob from these mob bosses or hitmen out to kill her by basically dressing her up as as herself in a blonde wig <laughs> and then going to a 2 a.m magic show yeah. with magic disappearing trumpets <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a magic show it, it it was another art piece okay that that's really the centerpiece of the movie I think that's when that's when I was like oh here's where mr Lynch was hiding exactly <laughs> well that's again it that's the moment it also kind of starts feel stops feeling like a TV pilot mm-hmm I mean, we still get those Lynchian touches throughout. Like when, okay, who are the who are the two guys who are literally in that one scene at the diner, and he's talking about his dream, <laughs> and then they go behind I'm, the dumpster, and old Greg is there. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was that was my motivation to see this movie. There's a meme based on that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> where the two characters, yes, it's a very well, and it the the guys at the two diners played by Pat, Patrick Fischler and Michael Cook. I believe Michael Cook was going to play a character in the TV series, kind of investigating this. But it's really, I think, introducing the concept of a dream world and that it's a threat, mm-hmm. a a a um, vital threat to these people. But it, again, it does it does result in a hilarious meme, <laughs> which is <laughs> which has taken me on Twitter. So okay. I will I will also admit that. Right. But yes, it's a, it's a scene that doesn't really go anywhere until, as you mentioned, old Greg later <laughs> opens up this little uh, blue box and tiny people, tiny an old tiny couple. Um, well, of... that's the couple. That's the couple who introduced who d- flew on the same flight as Betty. Who said goodbye oh, to her as they're leaving? Thank you for making thank you for making that connection. <laughs> well, that. now this movie makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, greatest movie ever made. <laughs> so, in terms of other things not quite explained, uh, I think we should get to the four main reasons why this movie I think is a uh, has uh, enraptured critics. Mm, today's. <laughs> Now hang on, John. Hang on. I'm not. I'm not accusing uh, the mostly male white um, <laughs> critics of uh, having particular tastes. But uh, when it seems that uh, Rita and Betty have some kind of respite um, from this mystery, and uh, Rita will be able to leave this apartment safely, they spend one night together in bed. Yes. She's like, "Oh, you've been sleeping on the couch all week. Come, come join me in bed." And I'm like, "Ooh, I see where this is going." <laughs> I mean, See, I don't pick up. I don't pick up on these things. No, I'm like you, you got to, you got to, you got to. You, you have the bed. I'll sleep on the couch. <laughs> I mean, I did think it was a nice kind of twist because again, it contrasts very well with like you know Betty's wholesome image, 
And again, that's a, a major kind of turning point for the movie because once they kind of settle in as like lesbian lovers, then it, again, then they go to that 2 a.m. magic show and then it's like, oh, okay, this is a David Lynch film now. Now I get it. Now we, <laughs> now we're, now the reins are off. Uh, and then like we talked about, Naomi Watts also plays Diane, you know, twisting back in on the story, Diane and Rita, a.k.a. Camilla, which is her real name, were in a relationship prior. And due mm-hmm. to some, you know, jealousy or professional jealousy, uh, professional and personal, because now she's seeing Adam. Mm-hmm. Diana puts a hit out on Camilla, and that's why she was up on Mulholland Drive, and that's why she got in that car wreck. Yeah, so, so it seems like it it comes full circle. Exactly, kind of. <laughs> we took a few twists and turns along the way, but <laughs> indeed we did. Yeah, and again, that doesn't explain the blue blocks. So that the it doesn't explain the. Yeah, it doesn't explain the blue blocks. <laughs> blue, yes, blue. or old Greg, <laughs> yes, or or the tiny little old couple. <laughs> but hey, yeah. hey, we 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 kind of draw a close. We sort of got there. Yeah. Yes. So, ugh. I don't know. I just I I wasn't I wasn't enthralled with it personally. That's and again, like I don't really have a, a reason for it besides just it didn't grab me. Because again, mm. I would rather have a movie with a coherent story and characters i'm kind of invested in i understand his desire to do kind of the dream logic but that doesn't really make me more invested in it that's the weird thing about like like judging it as an art piece it's like i can understand where the intention was but for me Mm. personally did i enjoy it no (laughs) so judging a movie like this i mean you could you could understand the intention of it of course it's yeah between the the doubling characters and Mm -hmm. the the bifurcated story like you can see the intention of it but uh, what was it about other other than the dream logic was there anything else about kind of the production wise or the performances that didn't quite grab you because i i do want to commend the production value of it even when it is a tv series or later when they lopped on an hour to make it a complete feature film. Like I saw no difference in the production value and it, and it does between the cinematography and the editing, it does have an incredible kind of like dreamlike quality to it. That really drew me in. Mm. Um, was there anything that you did admire about it or? I do admire the, the commitment to the dream logic. You're absolutely right. I think this movie does capture the tone and feeling of a dream quite well. Um, performances not super enthralling but again that's kind of intentional the way that you know Mm. betty is you know like straight out of like a 1950s kind of 
sitcom or whatever. And again, everyone around her is like a kooky character, you know, um, <laughs> like her landlady. Like, oh, I'll tell you what uh, stories of this place. Um, yeah. So I can't really. Although when she does play, when she eventually does settle into the uh, uh, Diana character, then it's like, oh, okay, now she's showing off some chops. Like now there's some kind yeah. of like meat on these bones. Like that. Well, I, that I found kind of very interesting and more much more. Compelling. Well, I think more of the turn happens in the audition. Mm. Oh yes, because that's also true. she takes what is a what is a very kind of staid scene. Mm-hmm. Um, first, she first she's rehearsing it with Rita, and that that's kind of fun. Again, it has nothing to do with um, in terms of the mystery <laughs> mm-hmm. plotline at all, but it is kind of fun. What appears to be a staid scene, and then later she she clear, she's clearly going to this audition, and she's seen as like a piece of meat or something. The co-star is is really lecherous, and yeah, let's do it close as a person. like the last girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So when she does kind of turn the tables and puts a completely different spin on it, where she's she's very sexual and attractive and pulls everybody off guard, I think that's also what really um, gets the critics' blood pumping, mm. as it were. <laughs> I mean, but Greg, is, isn't there shouldn't there be more to films than just simple titillation? Hmm. Uh, um. Based on this, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> again. <laughs> again, greatest movie of the twenty first century. <laughs> yep. Four great reasons to see. <laughs> yeah. Four boobies, nipples up. <laughs> John, how dare you? So uncouth. Um, oh, I'm All right, sorry. I will. I will have. I will quote film critic Tony Scott of the New York Times uh, on the Wikipedia page because that's all. The Tony Scott, do. director of Man on Fire. Uh, no, I call him Tony. He's he goes, but his nom de plume is A O Scott. I call him Tony because oh. I've heard him referred to as that on a movie review show, mm, and okay. I like to think that we're friends or contemporaries, <laughs> and I can call him Tony. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. We'll, we'll get yes. him on the horn. Let's let's slide into his DMs and see if he'll join us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if he's on Twitter. Anyway. <laughs> um, but he does note that it's an it's an offense against narrative order. Um, mm-hmm. But that's also intoxicating, it and more powerful for seeming to emerge from a murky night, uh, the murky night world of uh, the unconscious. So. Mm. I don't know. I, I'm kind of with him there. Uh, maybe I, my admiration is a little bit more reserved because also I don't arbitrarily pair things under like uh, greatest movies of the last ten years <laughs> or greatest movies where X character played two different parts. Or, no, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, but I did find a lot to admire in it. Um, I'm sorry that you're an idiot and obviously couldn't understand it. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the problem. Maybe I'm just a big fat dum dum. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't like it when these movies make me feel dumb. Okay, I get it. I'm smart. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it very clearly does, plot does come full circle. It explains where Rita's, uh, Rita's amnesia and the accident, uh, res- what the result of that was from. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like it is like something for dummies to <laughs> latch on to. Like, oh, I get it. This movie's smart. Because <laughs> it withheld me. You and I are much savvier and we know how magic mm. tricks are pulled. Indeed. Whereas, yeah. A less, uh, a less committed cinephile or moviegoer would see like, oh, wow, cool. I mean, cool that twist at the end. Yeah, I, I feel like ever since you know Pulp Fiction came out, it's just like doing any kind of movie where you do some kind of like altered chronology. It's like, oh wow, that was really well thought out. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> even though that's not even the intention. I don't even think that's the intention of the movie. It's like, yes, we get an explanation for the mystery, but it's like I don't think that was at David Lynch's forefront when he was writing it. <laughs> no, it and it wasn't and. Mm-hmm. I guess, and it also throws the idea of this being a dream world completely out the window. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, one star. Terrible movie. I hated it. 
And that's what this podcast is about. There we go. Ratings. Determining if... <laughs> yes. Are these the greatest movies of all time or some of the worst? <laughs> exactly. It's it's an either-or proposition, guys. Sorry. Indeed. If you're yeah. tuning in for the first time, there's your line. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're just like Rotten Tomatoes. Is it fresh or is it rotten? Mm. And there's no insight in between. Nope. And often it's left up to uh, just ignorant male voices. So there you go. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think SJWs like this movie because it's full of lesbians? Or <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Again, oh, this movie's got it's... too many girls in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's good because alt-right people I don't think would touch this with like a 10-foot pole. <laughs> mm. They'd, in the first like five minutes, they'd be like, "Yo, this movie's effing weird." <laughs> Let's put on three hundred again. <laughs> Let's put on Braveheart. Yeah, that Mel Gibson guy—he gets a bad rap. <laughs> He's just trying to bring Christian values back to Hollywood. Yeah, LOL. Um, LOL. Nothing matters. Four Chan, Eight Chan. Yes, John. No, of course movies matter. All right, and most importantly, they matter to us. Mm, indeed. So you know, in addition to reevaluating a classic movie that we haven't seen before we also give you something else yeah yes we have a patented recommendation segment at the end of every episode which we have dubbed spotlight 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 it's time robbie it's time and john i want to go first because i've got a uh you always go first but that's fine that's fine This gives me a chance to. This gives me a chance to catch up on emails and read the paper, so you can just you go. I, you go. No, John. No. This is why. No. This is why I wanted to go first. Okay. Is because it. This spotlight is actually going to be a discussion this time. You oh. can't just. Okay. You can't just immediately dismiss because you're the world's worst improv partner. <laughs> I you can't just immediately dismiss <laughs> my premise and then just and then just nip off for the five minutes as I try to extol the virtues of whatever I'm recommending and you don't even listen. Excuse me. Excuse me. Our improv group, Lollapalooza. <laughs> Is well renowned in the Tri County area. Thank you very much. No, I th- I thought we were called like a aspiring laughs. Oh, okay, <laughs> almost there. We, we aspire to laughs. That's we don't, twelve we don't notches lamer and also twelve notches more perfect. So I agree. Yeah. Yes, and let's continue. <laughs> yes. What I want to recommend is another podcast called Talking Simpsons. Yes, it's probably one of eight million podcasts about the Simpsons out there. Finally. Well, at least now we have the definitive one that we can all, you know, just settle on and then all the rest mm-hmm. can just die in a fire. Well, I think, yes, I think th- this one is the definitive one, A, because they were early uh, early adopters of the podcast format. Okay. Um, where they are in the in the current run of the Simpsons is important, as, which I will get to later. Mm-hmm. Um, but also they are, like, a, they establish their nerd cred and to do look at things at a critical eye because... If anything, Simpsons from the 90s, we don't look at it with a critical eye anymore, do we? It's just it's just become its own language and we just accept it and you know, it's our it's our it's our like literally like reaching across the stars to one another. It's like it's a Rosetta Stone basically. It's yes. our generation's Rosetta Stone. <laughs> exactly. So but um, these guys do uh, have on a guest every week and they do look at a, an episode a little bit more clearly. Yes, it can devolve into um, the scourge of every um, TV show or movie podcast which is quote I really liked dot 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 <laughs> yes i found this funny <laughs> yes here's the I joke i enjoyed this yes i enjoyed this part mm-hmm. which I, I i hope we avoid but yeah um sometimes this sometimes this podcast can't because it's discussing the greatest seasons of a one of the greatest tv shows of all time but anyway there you go <laughs> and they also established their nerd cred i mean um between they've also got spin-off podcasts about king of the hill and futurama and all that mm-hmm. but john there's there's one specific reason i wanted to bring it up this week okay is because they finally reached season nine. Oh, the the turning point. 
the cliff edge, as it were. And so we come to the point of when many, I guess, Simpsons devotees, mm-hmm. like let's call them uber nerds, let's call them losers, <laughs> who obviously can't accept that a TV show they liked uh, isn't very likable anymore. Mm-hmm. But they recently reviewed uh, The Principal and the Pauper. Ah, uh, yes. The reviled Principal and the Pauper. Yes, this is this is a big turning point for many people. Yes, because the storyline centered around a, a beloved character at this point. Again, all the characters got beloved. Um, <laughs> I think following 22 short films about Springfield, but mm-hmm. uh, Principal Skinner basically being revealed to be an imposter. Mm-hmm. It, but it all kind of like reset at the end, and it, and it seemed like one of the most blithe or tossed aside episodes, and didn't really match like the love that the Simpsons fans had had for the characters. And many people thought this was the moment that ju- the show jumped the shark. It's it's this episode or the Frank Grimes episode, I think, is what people kind mm. of say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are the ultimate, you know, no looking back moments. Like this is this yeah. has just gone too far. Which is, I'm glad you brought that up because they they look at whether the Frank Grimes episode, whether that was the turning point and how dark and kind of mean that that episode is as well. Mm-hmm. And yet that episode is beloved, whereas <laughs> this one is is reviled. So well, again, like, what, both, what are the differences there? Both episodes they t- they they flip the script so powerfully. To, mm. And then to just kind of, at the end of 22 minutes, flip the reset button. It's like, you can't go home again after episodes like that. Like with mm. Frank Grimes, it's like, there's a character who's literally brought in to argue with the very concept of the show. And then to just kind of be yeah. like, all right, see you next week. Like, that's too strong. And same thing with, you know, the principal and the it's popper. Same thing with the principal and the popper. The hosts of the podcast actually do like the episode. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they used to justify, and this is what the writer of the episode said, was like, oh, it's like TV always resetting, always sitting, hitting the reset button. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they justify it. But the reason I wanted to make it a talking point this time, John, mm-hmm. is because let's put on our surgery masks. Let's okay. prep. All right. You got your gloves on? Yeah, I do. All right. It's time always. we play script doctors. All right. Let's fix the principal and the popper. All right. You ready to do this? <laughs> let's do it, Greg. Let's do it. All right. I think the one issue they had, they sh- it shouldn't have been Principal Skinner. Um, because we they'd already done an episode where Principal Skinner lost his job. Mm. The episode's called Sweet Seymour Skinner's Badass Song. That's true. And it turned out to be a very heartfelt episode where Bart like realizes he needs an enemy or something and, and sees Principal Skinner as a person outside of his job. Mm-hmm. And so like that's a very heartfelt episode. Exactly. Uh, so it's it's completely it's completely kind of destroying all the sentiment that that episode built up. So what? if you are going to do like a, a show where a, a character is an imposter or something, don't make it Seymour Skinner. Make it, I don't know, uh, Ned Flanders or Bumblebee Man or something. <laughs> well, I mean, it also, like, again, it ties into the fact that one of the strongest things about the Seymour Skinner character is that he is so desperately square and then revealed yeah. that he was a Vietnam POW. <laughs> and yeah. that's always, like, a great study in contrast right there. And then to kind of push it too far to be like, oh, he literally was a different person in Vietnam. Like, he literally had yeah. a different name and everything that just also kind of ruins that classic joke you know like for yeah. instance well, <laughs> my favorite oh god we're doing it again yeah <laughs> when he, when he looks, i really liked <laughs> you know when he's reminiscing about vietnam and he's like the lights are coming through the venetian blinds and you know he gets mm-hmm. all squinty and he's talking about you know we f- we fed ourselves on a on a thin line you know a thin gruel based on mm-hmm. rice i try to get it here but they just can't <laughs> yeah. get the spices right <laughs> Uh, my punishment. 
Yeah, so A, don't make it about Seymour Skinner. They obviously, they did it because their inspiration for the show was a real um, instance, and I can't remember what movie it was also, but real instances of uh, POWs coming back and somebody else had assumed their identity. Mm, yeah. So exactly. there was some basis in fact for it, but... Like I Don think- Draper. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Well, that's the other that's the other point you bring up. I think with the uh, with the gift of hindsight and um, knowing that a, another magnificent show did it even better, th- what they should have done is maybe Bart or Lisa finds out just they find out that Seymour mm. uh, Skinner is an imposter. Exactly. Because because a it ties in the Simpsons more. That's the one thing that also the episode like kind of fails to do. It like the move the. TV show is called The Simpsons, and this episode has nothing to do with The Simpsons. So <laughs> that was the other huge issue with it. But like that way, you could do just a a, a redois of say um, Lisa. I don't think it's Lisa the skeptic, but it's when she finds out that the town's finder Jedediah Springfield is actually like a, a yeah. louse and a and a creep and a crook. You know whether she yeah whether she completely ruins the the Springfield Day celebration with that information. Mm. I mean, what character do you think would be more appropriate? Um... I mean, part of me feels like maybe a poo would kind of work because, again, like, I think he, sadly, they can't really use him anymore. But I think he yeah. was always, he was always probably the most uh, strongly characterized of all the kind of B cast. And yeah. you know, like again, he does kind of have more of a mysterious past, even though you know they've built it up. Well, I think that's why that that's point. why it would have worked. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's why having a poo would have worked a little bit if we do characterize him and don't just look at him as a stereotype. Yeah. I guess the important thing that uh, about that character would have to be a pillar of the community, and that's why they you'd mm-hmm. see more Skinner, which is yeah, why it also feels too. like such a betrayal to you know like have that done to a character that the mm-hmm. audience has grown to love. So yes, mm-hmm. although I so I do want to conclude this discussion. I'm glad you mentioned that he was a pillar of the community because it does lead to an all-time great Simpsons <laughs> joke. I think <laughs> mm-hmm. following they do get him a cake for this big celebration, and that's when the co-star played by martin or the guest star played by martin sheen says like no i'm the real seymour skinner and everyone's shocked by this revelation they zoom in on homer and his thoughts and his (laughs) thoughts go just just pretend to look shocked and move slowly towards the cake (laughs) (laughs) so if nothing else at least the episode does have that money line exactly (laughs) you can take that one to the bank it's still funny like no one you can argue that you know oh it destroyed the simpsons but at the end of the day it's still a funny episode so and same thing with frank grimes Yeah, or grimy, yes. as he liked to be called. <laughs> as he liked to be called. <laughs> I should I should probably explain. You and I jumped off the boat around season thirteen. I think I did investigate. Yeah, so. uh, the last episode I can remember being like, okay, we can. This is stop. This has stopped being uh, appointment television. Was the massive mm-hmm. one where they had the Rolling Stones and like Lenny Kravitz and uh, Elvis Costello guest star, and it was just like, all right, this is clearly the path they're going on. It's just like, what celebrity did we get this week? And I just yeah. yeah. That's too much. Too much. For me, I think it was the one that Marge gets breast implants. <laughs> that one I vividly remember. Like, okay, we're, we're, we've run this course. <laughs> I do vaguely remember that episode. Wow, I didn't think about that one until you mentioned it. Huh. Well, yeah. Human memory. <laughs> we've, we've literally got 300, or excuse me, 430 episodes to go through. 30 years. That show's been on for 30 years. And I can't, I, I haven't seen an episode in like <laughs> the last 15. <laughs> Well, it's a shame. I've only seen, like, two in that time, like, maybe the last 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. And they've both been execrable. One is about, um, shoot, I can't remember. Oh, it was called The Doshal Network, and Lisa creates a 
social network and it, and it makes everybody go crazy it literally feels like a like a tv show written by like a 70 year old luddite oh, um, oh dear <laughs> yeah and the other one was uh, guest star was glenn close as again she's made some recurring appearances as uh, homer's mom mm-hmm. and it seems to be sentimental because she passes away yeah and that's the big moment before the commercial break. But what it leads to is this: she leaves clues on this ridiculous adventure where they have to take out this like uh, this destructive power plant that Mr. Burns oh, has no. on top of a mountain oh, or something. No. Yeah, it's it's just a lead up to some stupid adventure that the Simpsons have to solve. It's it's awful. The, the, those <laughs> those move those episodes are ten times worse <laughs> than the principal and the pauper right. or Homer's enemy. Good to know. Uh, yes. See, you come, you come for the Mulholland Drive discussion, and you end with beautiful Simpsons quotes. I mean, what, exactly. what more could you want? Why are we not at the top of the iTunes charts? I don't know. I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah, people have no taste. <laughs> anyway, yes. Speaking of taste, I finally got around to watching a movie that was critically lauded when it came out this summer, and I'm mm-hmm. finally getting into it now. So I'm going to recommend it to you. I finally saw Three Identical Strangers. Ah, but John, it didn't receive any accolades this award season, so obviously it's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am. I do acclaimed. <laughs> That's my crust of the crown impression. You're welcome. <laughs> what do all those laurels get you around your poster? <laughs> Nothing I say. Yeah. Um, so the movie turns out is done by CNN Films, which definitely kind of have their house style. And I was kind of mm-hmm. a little disappointed, you know, tuning in and realizing like, oh, this is kind of the template they're working out. All right, I was kind of hoping for something a little. I don't, is it too much to ask that all documentaries are done by Errol Morris? Is that too much? <laughs> yes. Uh, he's not a... I just want all Errol Morris he's, documentaries. He's a busy man. Okay. He's, he's, there, there aren't five of him around, like, right. you know, little minions. Although Alex Gibney somehow is able to do that, and Morgan Neville. They, <laughs> they stick their little minions out in the world, and yeah. that's why they're able to produce, like, and direct five documentaries a year. Hmm. Well, it does. It does something very similar to oh, what is that movie called? The Stranger, who's the imposter? Uh, yes, the imposter. Um, because this is a this is another kind of true crime story. Well, not true crime, but mm-hmm. uh, a, a weird happenstance ripped from the headlines. In the case of the imposter, it was a, a con man basically coming to a family uh, who. Um, had lost their son many years ago mm-hmm. even though he looked nothing like the son at this point that came with an accent and was clearly just posing as his family and they accepted him to somehow deal with the loss of their son mm-hmm. in the case of three identical strangers I don't, i'm gonna let you proceed from here <laughs> so for those who don't know the story uh it's about um three triplets who uh were separated at birth they were all adopted, mm. and the uh, one ends up going to college, and he keeps getting recognized. Everyone keeps thinking that he's this guy named Eddie. And, a f- you know, someone, a stranger turns out and tells him, like, it's because you look just like this guy. Let's call him. And they get reunited, and it turns out, like, oh, my gosh, we're exactly identical. We must be twins. And that becomes mm-hmm. a new story. And as a result, a third person reaches out to them and says, like, hey, I look just like you, too. And so that then it becomes just a huge media circus around these three guys. And, you know, everyone has the same questions. Like, do you guys have the same taste in women? They all smoke the same <laughs> brand of cigarettes. And, you know, it's, <laughs> you get this. What a, what a fun little story. Exactly. <laughs> stick in the Palookaville press. And I assume it ends there. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> no reason to look further. We're fine. And that's when it turns into a conspiracy thriller. Why were these three boys separated? the explanation i for uh so they were all you know sent out from the same adoption agency 
And mm. the adoption agency's explanation was the fact that, oh, it's just hard to place three kids, so that's why we split them up. We thought it would they would all go to different homes and it would be easier because a lot of families wouldn't want to adopt triplets, which turns out is bullshit. All, the, all families who adopted these three boys were like, we would have taken all three if we had known that they had brothers. Mm. Um, turns out the real reason why they were separated was because they were part of a psychological experiment where they were intentionally through this uh, Jewish adoption agency, separating them and then studying them individually. And it's kind of funny that brothers, uh, only two were interviewed. Uh, I don't want to spoil why the third one's not. Um, <laughs> yeah. All three are kind of interviewed, and it's funny how you almost kind of get the sense that they're reliving these memories, and they realize, like, oh, yeah, they had these guys come by, and they watched us play and took notes, and then they asked us interview questions and we did tests it was all kind of strange but we didn't think too much about it and the parents didn't seem to mind and it's because they were part of this long-term psychological study on how identical twins or triplets in this case uh ended up being different personality wise when it came to nurture and that's kind of the main thesis of the movie is you know is it all about nature or is it nurture because for the first two thirds it's all like look how similar these guys are they all have the same body language mm -hmm. they all have pretty much the same personality um mm -hmm. besides minor differences and then in the third act it's kind of it gets more into their kind of family histories and like how their different upbringings did result in where they ended up you know finally and how horribly unethical this <laughs> exactly whole psychological yes. experiment is, where you ripped three a whole family apart exactly and that's and that's also part of the conspiracy thriller aspect of it is they're trying to get the actual documents, the actual results of the study, which was never published. And because it was no, so... No, because it's abhorrent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And be, Well, because it was so unethical and it was so abhorrent, yeah. it was never published and it was put under lock and key. Like the uh, company, the board that's in charge, that was overseeing the experiment and overseeing the adoption agency, like... Uh, dedicated it to the Yale Library only to be like released in 2066 or something like that. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it becomes kind of an advocacy doc as well to like, please release these papers at least to the twins who were affected by this study. Because that's mm. the other thing. They also interview other twins who were also separated and were reunited. And Kel Surprise, they also have the same personality and also all mm. the same traits as well. They interview these two female twins who both ended up going to film school. <laughs> It's just kind of funny, uh, and okay. that's and I think did they direct the documentary? No, they be, didn't. No, that would be that would be a fun twist. <laughs> Darn, I know, too bad. I mean, that is kind of. I think that's kind of one of the weird things. It, it, it wants to make this argument of like, is it nature? Or is it nurture? But from my perspective, it's definitely nature because mm. it keeps emphasizing the fact that all these guys have extremely similar personalities and like body language as well, but also the subject of the fact that a lot of these uh, subjects, I, I don't know what else to call them besides subjects, yeah. came from situations where the parents probably had a mental illness. And that definitely comes mm. to the forefront with the uh, with the three brothers who were examined in this documentary. And uh, sadly, that's the case with a lot of kind of adoptive kids is because obviously there's got to be a reason why the parent can't take care of them. So, you know, again, and that's a hereditary thing that sadly happens so it's like it tries to kind of play this balancing act between like is it nature or is it nurture but i think it personally came way too far down on nurture again it's kind of like it takes up you know the first two acts about oh how look at how similar these guys are so 
So um, okay, so so John, you're saying you're you're a eugenics guy. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty much a, yeah, I'm pretty much a eugenics guy, and you know, I, <laughs> yeah, you've been red pilled or whatever. It just yeah, goes to show that the Jews are you know just like trying to control <laughs> the narrative and control the media. Yep, <laughs> exactly. And uh, Captain Marvel is a scourge. There you go. It's, it all ties back to Captain Marvel. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> no, of course, we're being ironical. Uh, yes, I, I, it is kind of a, it is kind of sad that unfortunately this kind of it, it was a Jewish organization that you know was adopting out mm. these kids because then it just ties back into the whole like, oh you know oh what what else do the you know it's just it's red meat for these you know fear mongering crazy people who think like the Jews control everything. Yeah, these well, morons. Yeah. <laughs> well, the story took place on not Long Island as well. Yeah, so. exactly. That's also part. What are you? Yeah. What are you? What are you saying, Greg? I'm saying it's a predominantly Jewish community. What are so. you talking about? <laughs> Get out of here! I'm gonna call my booby. <laughs> <laughs> There's a character named Booby anyway. in the in the movie as well. Really? Yes, Boobala. Nice. <laughs> Hans. Booby. Hans. Anyway. Booby. <laughs> but yeah, which were probably worse than. Those Simpsons podcasts, just repeating lines that we like. Anyway, <laughs> uh, really good movie. It's on uh, Hulu now, so check it out. We're seeing a number of great documentaries on Hulu. Mm-hmm. They're, well, everyone's just trying to keep up with Netflix. I feel like Netflix uh, sets the trend. You know, it's like, we're going to start doing mm-hmm. stand-up comedy, and then all of a sudden, Amazon's like, we've got stand-up comedy, too! <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that yet. I, I worry that... Uh, Netflix being on the razor's, ed- razor's edge is is good for now, mm-hmm. but let's look at a potential boondoggle like The Irishman, costing <laughs> two hundred million dollars to make digitally make uh, Robert De Niro look twenty years younger, <laughs> and <laughs> suddenly their valuation isn't isn't as high, and the the banks come to collect, and <laughs> things aren't looking so hot. So. Greg, Joe Pesci is worth every penny. Okay, how dare this you? This is true. How dare you? <sighs> Again, we're talking about future things. Well, we look forward to seeing The Irishman one of these days. Of course. And perhaps that was a more operative debate we should have had. Um, <laughs> Steven Spielberg sh- shaking his walking stick at the cloud, saying, "No, oh, only only movies in theaters, please." I don't know what I don't know what kind of stake he has in Regal Cinema or anything. Exactly. Like that, but, oh, it's probably he. I mean, I saw a tweet that said, "Like, I don't think the director of Ready Player One should be complaining about the quality of streaming movies." <laughs> no, that's the thing I can never like scrut with these guys, like. I I feel like Quentin Tarantino comes by his like affinity for celluloid honestly, mm-hmm. but yeah I don't I don't know what Steven Spielberg well th- again a guy who also has just literally dropped things just for done things just for money mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what he sees in say Netflix because because it's only Netflix I mean that's that's who they're targeting I mean t- until Hulu or an Amazon film gets well, yeah. nominated or actually what am i saying uh, one did manchester by the sea won <laughs> one several awards yeah but that at least went to theaters first that's the thing yeah like that was amazon the, amazon yeah. is buying these guys up streaming and model. giving it like a normal distribution only to have it be an exclusive to their streaming service later on whereas netflix mm-hmm. is doing this weird kind of model where it's like streaming but also you can see it in theaters if you kind of if you're into that kind of thing which i think kind of makes a more sense because theater should probably be the boutique experience and let people see um, movies, you know, at their own leisure. That's the it, whole advantage of streaming. Yes, it's it's a very privileged thing to say because I I prefer to see movies on the biggest screen possible, just in a distraction-free environment. Mm. However, I have that privilege living in Los Angeles. Like yeah. I can see a Cold War on in the theater, where somebody in Missoula, Montana, can't. Yeah. Um, so they they get exposure to, say, Roma or 
I don't know, um, the Cloverfield Paradox or something. <laughs> you know, you take the good with the bad, but at least they get the opportunity to see it. Well, we um, also didn't bring this up. David Lynch, same thing. He's very much like, I can't mm. believe people watch, try to watch movies on their phones. <laughs> you know, old, nice. man, old yes. man Lynch. And just despite him, that just despite him, that's how we watched the uh, Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Oh, I watched it. Yeah, I watched it on my phone. Like, uh, you know, I watched it in 30-minute chunks. I was like, all right, I'm going to yeah. bed. And then, you know, mm-hmm. it the intended experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't like people watching. Go eat your porridge, Grandpa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the world's changing, all right? And Alfonso Cuarón has more Oscars to his name, uh, Steven Spielberg, so. <laughs> oh, Craig, we are full of the vinegar. We're full of the fire. Indeed we are. Where can people go to get this fire on, like, a daily basis? Well, they can get it on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Not necessarily our feeds, but you should check out our feeds anyway. <laughs> Not our feeds in particular, but you should check out those sites. Yeah. They got good content. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do have a Facebook page, Aspiring Snobs, mm-hmm. facebook.com slash Aspiring Snobs, as well as twitter.com slash Aspiring Snobs. Yes. And you can follow us there for all our latest news and updates. And then, mm-hmm. if you want to reach out to us directly, you can always email us at AspiringSnobs at gmail.com with your comments, questions, yeah. and recommendations. Yeah, let us know your interpretations of Mulholland Drive, because um, clearly we need some help. <laughs> <laughs> We're two dum dums. We don't get it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hence, hence the the tangents onto uh, streaming versus the theatrical experience mm-hmm. and The Simpsons. So. And please, please give us all your theories about Twin Peaks. We're dying to hear those as well. Oh, oh yes, please. <laughs> We're we're soliciting them. Mm-hmm. And how? And then, once you're done with all that, you can go to your podcast service of choice and rate us a five stars, and that'll help people reach out to us, and we can build this Aspiring Snobs community. Yes, and the other way we're doing that is that you can watch the movie along with us the following week. Mm, indeed. And this week we'll be, because Mulholland Drive got me in the mood for 50s Hollywood, I decided we should probably review a 1950s a musical. What do you say, Greg? Your favorite even genre. Though the, even though the movie's from 1962? Shut, fuck, <laughs> fuck, shut up. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Feels fifties to me. I know, I know what you mean. Classic Hollywood. Yeah, it's, classic it's, golden it still age. feels like classic Hollywood. Because next week yeah. we'll be revisiting West Side Story. Yeah, it's revisiting. I've never seen it. No, I've, all right, neither have I. So yeah. I, I, that'll tie into our Facebook, or excuse me, it's Facebook. That'll tie into our Steven Spielberg discussion, who's uh, in talks to do a remake. So oh boy, that'll be great. Yeah. Talk about old man Spielberg. <laughs> do your high kicks. Oh, is he gonna CGI the whole thing? That would be awesome. I probably, probably. <laughs> Janusz Kaminski will put lights up as bright as brighter than the sun <laughs> to fill. CGI's easier in bright light. It sure is. To obscure uh, how bad it looks. <laughs> That's not true. I'm being mean. No, anyway, yeah. John, let's sign off. Let's let's give people back their value. Before he burned too many bridges, you think you yeah. think Steven Spielberg's listening to this seething steam coming out I, of his oh, ears? Oh, I know he is. I know he is. <laughs> The whole Academy uh, Board of Governors is listening to this right now oh, at their dear. meeting, at their annual meeting. Like, if, if we lose Aspiring Snobs, we lose our audience. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we better sign off. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. <laughs> da, 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 da. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. For a small fee in America. It is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. I have my own washing machine. What will you have though to keep clean? Skyscrapers bloom in America.
Well, they not only in America.